the way that I explain it is you, everybody knows that after a course of antibiotics, you go and take some probiotics, and everyone's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So compost tea sort of probiotics to the soil, whereas your fungicides are your antibiotics. And that, you put it into an analogy like that, and it makes a lot of sense. G'day and welcome to episode 32 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and today I'm chatting with Steve Faulkner, who's a viticulturalist with Oak Ridge Wines based in the Yarra Valley of Victoria. If you're anything like me and you're not really sure what a viticulturalist is, I'll let him describe what it is to you, because he's far better at it than me. Today's chat with Steve covers some technical aspects of winemaking, which is bloody interesting. He mentions in 2009 there was a significant shift in practices and weather patterns. This has led to adjusting how they actually grow the wines in the vineyard. The harsher summers that are definitely hotter and the springs like this year that are incredibly wet. The flow on effects that this actually has through climate change into how they grow wine is really interesting. He talks about how they trim the vines, how they adjust so the grapes have better shade at different times of the year. During this chat, I had this aha moment. I actually had a couple of them, but Steve was started to talk about plant health and soil health and the way he was describing it actually reminded me a lot of how Amy Knight in episode 24 and Steph Geddes in episode 13 were talking about, essentially it came down to a balanced diet. As Steve talks about the crossover between soil management and the end result and end quality of wines, I was actually really surprised, as he mentioned, he doesn't speak with, even within the wine industry, but kind of more broadly, that there's not as much of a crossover of people all around the agriculture area that are actually discussing soil and yeah it surprised me anyway so i've got this crazy idea but i'd just be it's purely just out of interest if there's people from across the supply chain that are interested in chatting more about soils just reach out and send me a message because i'd be interested to see if there's a chance to maybe bring together some people at some stage early next year for that anyway we'll jump into it Well, Steve, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ollie. Great to be here. Mate, it's been been an interesting year, and I suppose for you guys on in regard to the winery, um, you'd normally be seeing plenty of people throughout the year. So how how are you guys going at the moment, and are you getting, I suppose, somewhat excited about what summer might look like? Yeah, we are. Look, look, we've been uh, we're we're in the Yarra Valley, and we're considered part of uh, Metro Melbourne, so. We've been shut since around March, uh, still a door in our restaurant, and uh, we didn't reopen when we had that period where we could. We're lucky that we have uh, retail brands in the supermarkets that sort of keep us chugging along, and we don't have to rely on the on-premise restaurant sales and things like that. Unlike some of our some of our good friends who are struggling a, a lot with uh, wine sales, and um, yeah, we're looking forward to welcoming people back and getting into some sort of normality. Uh, my kids have been homeschooled basically for two two terms this year and they need to get back and socialise with their friends. Thank goodness they're back in the last two weeks. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's been just a crazy year. We started with bushfires and smoke and then COVID hit and the world's changed. Yeah, and so I suppose as a community of can, – can you run me through maybe just at a, a high level for someone who – doesn't know a, a whole lot about wines, but what? So, what is a viticulturalist, and how do you guys fit into, I suppose, the bigger picture of winemaking? Well, the 
the catch cry in the winery is that the wine's made in the vineyard. And the viticulturist is basically the person that grows grapes. So we're in charge of the quality of the grapes and the quantity of the grapes that come out of the vineyard. So we're in charge of the irrigation, the maintenance, the pruning, the amount of fruit that's there, how that fruit's grown. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a thing in, in, in vineyards or viticulture called terroir, which is a French word for the climate and how that grape is grown influences how it tastes. So the viticulturist is in charge of that. So we use a lot of practices to determine the quality of the grape. We determine the size of the grape, the colour of the grape, how much sun the grapes get. Or with climate change these days, it's more about keeping the sun off the grapes, uh, especially since 2009 when we had the uh, massive heat waves, or the heat waves really started in 2009, I believe, from my experience, that we had to start protecting the western side of our canopies because the afternoon sun was just frying our fruit and we've had to adapt in that regard from letting light into the canopies to keeping light out. And uh, we have to foresee the future. Like We've got to make sure we have enough bunches on there to get through flowering and then if, make sure flowering goes through well. And if it doesn't, we don't get enough fruit. If it goes through too well, we might have to take fruit off. And there's timings of if we need to trim the vines or water them or determine the quality of the fruit that the winemaker can make into wine, which ultimately they can't change the flavours or anything of the wine. And the grapes do all the hard, hard heavy lifting, so to, so to speak. So that's the viticulturist's job. It's, Pretty complex and uh, pretty technical, and uh, can be simple, but also isn't at the same time. <laughs> if that's not a contradiction, I don't know what is. So, yeah. question on, and just out of interest, like how does the process work with like keeping sun off? Are you putting up shade sail, like shade sails, to, to keep that afternoon sun off? Or oh, how are you? Gonna so, so when I started in viticulture back in two thousand and five, the climate wasn't as harsh. I was down in the Mornington Peninsula and. Routinely, we release, we remove leaves from around the fruit on the eastern side and some on the western side to make sure that they got enough sun to get ripe. And after 2009, that some cool places were still doing that practice. And on what was it, Black Saturday, 40% of the fruit on the western side got fried and became unusable. unusable. So they lost 40% of their yield in one day. So we had to change our management strategy. So what we do is when we, when you look at a vineyard, you see that it's a nice thin box hedge. So these days it's a nice box hedge on the eastern side, which is, you know, we call, I call that the good sun because it's nice, uh, not as harsh sun in the morning. But we keep the western side a lot wider with a lot more leaves. So we're giving it more leaf layers of protection. It's not any shale sales or anything like that. It's just using the actual vines to protect it from the sun. Instead of making it really skinny, we make it quite thick on the west. And so that's how we protect the western side now, which has been a major shift for cool climate regions to do that sort of thing because having a thicker canopy leads to less air getting around, uh, possibility of more disease getting in. So you know, climate change has really affected us. And um, our 
harvests have come up to four weeks earlier than they have in the early 2000s. So we've had to adapt a lot and learn a lot within the last 10 years of viticulture or growing grapes. Yeah, and so on that, I think, or a couple of questions. One, because our listeners are most likely um, wine fans. And so, look, what... What changes are you, I suppose, actually seeing and what are the risks of it? So things up around the bushfires and, and what does smoke around the grapes do, for instance? So the smoke uh, can leave a chemical on the grapes, like physical smoke, which is a thing called glycol, which can, when it's made into wine, like red wine, for example, when you make them, you, you soak the juice on the skins to get the colour of the wine. And the skins release the actual smoke. And once it goes in, it just, it tastes like you're drinking a, a bushfire. And it's just not, it's not pleasant. So it, bushfires can really hurt us. But there's been so much work done by so many great research institutes around that taught us that, um, it did. It's not just about having the smoke in the air, it's about the proximity of the fire to the vineyard. And if it's really close to the vineyard, you've got a lot of volatile compounds that can land on the grapes that can cause smoke tank. But if the fire is a long way away, a lot of those volatiles are lost through the air, so the smoke might not tank it. So it, 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 there's a lot of science behind bushfire smoke and what kind of, things are burning, whether it be grass, whether it be forest, or and how much it affects the taste of the grape and the finished wine. Like a few regions this year dropped their entire crop on the ground because they just could not use it to make wine because it would just be of a quality that they could not put their name on. But it, it's a big, big issue, this uh, smoke paint. Yeah, wow. In, in regard to, I suppose, like... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. I, w- I want to kind of focus on the the people aspect and like so so for you was where did the fascination around uh yeah viticulture and i suppose wine start and when did it come to you oh so i was finishing school in the late 1990s and my dad was in, is in agricultural insurance and his company just happened to be one of the one few that insured vineyards and in the late 90s was the planting boom for vineyards. Uh, there was a lot of reasons why a lot of people planted vineyards and my dad said to me, hey, you know, there's a lot of these vineyards going in. Viticulture could possibly be a good career for you. So 
I enrolled at Dukey College, which is uh, halfway between Shepparton and Benalla, in a Bachelor of Agriculture, which I was going to have in brackets, Viticulture. And I got there and I enrolled in the Viticulture course and um, I didn't understand any of it. And it was actually like a completely different language to me when they're talking about rootstocks and scions and Schwartzman and Saliki. And I was like, I never felt so daft in my entire life than I did sitting in that first Viticulture course. And um, I actually didn't finish it. I got more interested in agribusiness and weed management, fertilizer management. So I didn't actually get the viticulture in brackets at the end of my Bachelor of Agriculture at the end. But I, just before I graduated, a mate was working in a vineyard and I said to him, hey, is there any work where you are? And uh, I started working there three days later. And uh, when I got there, I really liked the team that I worked with. We were a vineyard contracting company and we worked on like, oh, probably... 40 different vineyards on the Mornington Peninsula just going around doing different work from surveying vineyards to putting in posts, marking posts, um, building the entire thing from the ground up as well as just pruning and doing all the manual labour and tractor work. And it just really gelled with me being able to get that result at the end of the day. Um, my work experience through university and I had a summer scholarship for the Department of Prime Industries uh, studying biological control of weeds and I got really into that using insects to control noxious weeds and they were importing these bugs from overseas and putting them to a quarantine uh, thing with airlocks and studying their life cycles and I was really cool really thought that was really cool but then I asked one of the scientists I said um so how long until you get some results from this work and he said oh probably about 15 years and I was just like, I can't do this. <laughs> There's no way that I can uh, wait 15 years to see if this works. So one of the things that I really liked about working in a vineyard was you get a result every day from the work that you're doing. Like even if it's just, you know, we've got to put some put the wires up to make the shoots go up straight. And it's sort of creating order from chaos for the, and having everything in a, meticulous way in a disciplined way sort of really just gelled with me and it turned out that I was pretty good at it because I was fastidious about the way that I did things and uh, it all sort of went from there and uh, <laughs> it worked out in the end but you know I'm, I'm very happy with with the way that things have gone for me I met my wife at a winery and uh, we've lived in some pretty awesome places working at vineyards and yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way now that I look back on it. And have, have you always had the fascination, I suppose, with the Australian wine industry or has, has it taken you overseas? I haven't been overseas yet. Um, I love the Australian wine industry. It's, we are creating some of the world's best wines here and, you know, we drink we drink a lot. We have a lot of wine at, at my current workplace at Oak Ridge and uh, we sit down and we look at them on a Friday with some lunch and we chat about them and our wines are just as good as the stuff that we get from overseas. The stuff from overseas is different and ours is different. But, yeah, one day I hope to get overseas um, just to see. But Australia uh, as a whole, uh, we are at the forefront of a lot of our farming practices as well as viticultural practices. And we're seen as being a clean, green, 
um, produce producing nation compared to the others overseas. And uh, I think it really shows in our wines in particular, just the fact that our vineyard industry have always been progressive. We're always looking for what is the better way to, that we can do this. And if you think about how that goes through to the consumer, viticulture has sort of always been ahead of that, even though it looks like we're going hand in hand with what the market wants at the moment. Like I planted my first cover crop back in 2008 and it wasn't such a big thing to have organic or biological or biodynamic wines back then. But there's been a, those sorts of producers around for like 30 years. And the it's like the new new young consumers, they're the ones that are concerned with where their produce is coming from and how it's grown and its impact on the environment. And that is an amazing thing. But, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. So has a lot of agriculture. And um, I think it's just finally being recognised. Yeah, I was going to say that well, a couple of things there. It sounds like you've got a pretty decent job if you get to drink wine on a Friday and, and it's classed as being part of your research. But... Like on that, well, there's a couple of things I want to unpack here. One around the on-farm practice piece, but you just started to allude to it around the consumer angle and the people wanting to understand more. So how how much has that changed over the last few years and how is the information, I suppose, going from yourself through the cellar door and, and out towards the consumer? But but also how, how influential is the consumer in what they're saying and what they're thinking in terms of what actually happens on the ground and between the rows? Um, I don't think the consumer determines that. I think that's inherent in the people that run the vineyard. and but, like, People, viticulturists, we're a very um, pretty special bunch. All we want to do is do better constantly because we, you know, we, we love hearing people say, oh, they love this wine, they love that wine. And you're like, yeah, because I did this this year and I did that. And through Cellar Door, you know, they part of the passion of wine, I guess, that people get is the story behind the wine. So now, instead of just being about the winemaking or the vineyard pedigree or something like that, people are wanting to know what is being done to grow that to grow that wine. So they want to know, you know. What are you doing for emissions? What are you doing to keep the soil healthy? What are you doing to look after people? So the more that we do, the more that our Salvador people can say, hey, look, we're producing this in an ethical way. And uh, I'll say something rather, what I think is a bit controversial here is that uh, I think wineries and vineyards have more obligation to be sustainable than other agricultural industries because even though some people consider wine an essential uh, product to their lives, it, it's a luxury item. And being a luxury item, you know, we're, we're farming, we're creating emissions, we're killing the soil, we're growing plants. We, we are a luxury item, so we have more, we need to be more focused on doing things efficiently and reducing our emissions to produce our product, I, I believe, because it, it is not necessary for us to, continue going as humans it's not a food but and that's what i'm seeing as well i'm seeing a, a lot of people are saying look we have to do this better we uh, it's a tractor heavy uh job and 
people are working out ways to work multiple rows at once or build constantly building the soil so it's healthier using less synthetic pesticides and um, fertilizers and all of that is part of the story that Celador talks and people love to hear that we're being responsible and ethical in the way that we produce our grapes. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think you were just mentioning before how you, your first cover crop was in 2008 and then 10 years later it starts to become a, a hot topic of conversation in the public eye. So like on that front, what are some of the trends, and he, here's your chance to be a fortune teller, Steve. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the things that you're seeing now or that you're actually doing inside the farm gate that you think will be the next trend or, or the next thing which will actually be talked about by the consumer? Well, the biggest topic at the moment is what's healthy soil and what are people doing to make their soil healthy. And all everything is an intertwined web, which is uh, our farming methods now have to combat climate change. So climate change affects how much rainfall we get, whether it be too much or too little. It, it affects the amount of sunlight that we get. So what the trend is at the moment is building your soil, uh, making it a healthy soil, which is completely different to how you taught how to grow grapes. You taught to like starve, starve the vines so you get better quality. But now we're getting to the point where we have to have a soil that works. So or organic wine is growing significantly. Um, that people are not wanting to have those chemicals used on the grapes that are being made into wine for them. But that's already sort of out there. But the way the way that um this all sort of ties in is that everybody's focusing at the moment. The hot topic is uh, compost. Everybody's adding organic matter to their soils. And what the organic matter does is it holds many, many times its own weight in water, yet at the opposite end, it also facilitates drainage in the soil. And if and rainfall is not becoming, it's not as steady as it once was. We don't get uh, light showers for a couple of days where it just gets a chance to soak in. You know, we're getting 40 mils in one day. So the soil has to be able to handle that. So having a soil that's healthy, that's full of organic matter, is able to drain that water away more efficiently than a soil that doesn't. And at the same time, it'll hold the soil at fuel capacity, full of water, preparing us to get through the summer months. So soil health is, and defining exactly what soil health is, is the current hot topic. And then the next thing is sustainability trying to get an answer out of people about what exactly sustainability is, where does it start, where does it finish, what is actually sustainable. It is a huge topic that people have tried to define, but it all comes down to what is responsible for you, for your farm, and what is profitable, because there's no point farming if you can't make money enough to continue doing it. So sustainability has to take in so many things into account. It's not just about not using chemicals and using compost and all feel-good things. It has to be part of your business model to make sure that you can still run a business. Otherwise, you may as well convert it to a paddock and plant trees because that's possibly the most sustainable thing to, to do. Yeah. No, it's it's a really interesting um, 
I suppose, area to talk about. So in, in 2015, I worked on a cro- like a cropping property over in uh, Canada and we were chatting about the topic of sustainability and, uh, and I think it, well, the farms that I've worked on and across in Australia have done it in, in droves and done an incredible job to be sustainable and I think thinking of that next generation and, or 10 and 20 years in front, but we were having this conversation and it was basically the, the Canadian farmer's point of view was it, it's hard to be sustainable if you're not profitable, but you can't be profitable if you're not sustainable and the two are directly intertwined that you can make yeah. money this year, but in terms of people aren't turning up into farming to do it for one to two years and exit, like it's a, it's a long-term play. And I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. In vineyards, for example, like, you know, uh, my second boss, Chris Pfeiffer and Rutherglen, his favorite saying was you don't plant vines for your children, you plant them for your grandchildren. We've got some of the world's oldest vineyards in Australia and, these are farms that can last for six generations of the same vines in the ground. I think that's sustainability. And uh, we do things excellently in Australia. And um, if you can't turn a profit, then there's no point being in the business. And I guess that that is a real part of sustainability that's a little bit overlooked, whereas going out and, uh, you know, you, you have to be pragmatic with sustainability as well, you can't just say, look, I'm going to go organic and if this rainfall event comes and I lose all my crop, then that's okay. You still need to have some flexibility to be able to protect your business while, and still maintaining sustainability. Just using some chemicals every now and then isn't, isn't bad. It is protecting your business and your assets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so. one thing that I was really fascinated with and what I was looking at that you do is, and this, that's basically one of your practices is that like looking down the rows, you've got one row which has grasses and, and everything flowering and then you've got a mowing row, for instance. Like what, why does that happen and, and what are you doing there? Yeah, so what we do every year is we cover crop every second row of the vineyard and a cover crop is planting species with a specific reason and it's part of a big thing that we use in our pot. It's a system of farming that I use called biological farming. And the reason that I sort of started down this route was I had the opportunity back in 2011 to choose any farming system that I wanted. And I researched organic, biodynamic, um, all these other things. And I thought, none of these really gel with me. They've all got these rules and things that you can and can't do. And then I went to a workshop with uh, Dr. Mary Cole of AgPath. She's got a lab down in um, Garfield in Victoria and she's uh, been a mycologist, which is a fungi specialist for 45 years. And uh, she put on this workshop with Stuart Proud and Sarah Morgan and they taught us this thing called biological farming. And uh, I was like, this is pretty cool because we make this stuff called aerated compost tea, which is you make this compost that's highly fungal put it in this big bag then put it into a thousand litre brewer and run some air through it and uh, put in some foods, which is humic acid and seaweed and fish. And over 45, 48 hours, the microbes from that compost just multiply exponentially. And then all you do is spray it on the ground and they keep growing from there. And so what 
got it for me was I was like, this is this is pretty cool stuff. This is you know we're putting biology back into the soil, and it was cheap and it was easy and it was all science based. And the one of the catch cries was that uh, you can't manage what you can't measure, and so with this compost tea you can analyze your compost and see how much fungi and bacteria is in it under the microscope. And then you can brew your tea and you can analyze the tea under the microscope and see if you made a good tea or a bad tea. And then once you spray it out of the nozzle, you can catch it out of the nozzle to see that the tea is coming through intact out of your nozzle. And then finally, you can dig up some dirt in your vineyard and see that the microbes that you've sprayed have actually grown in that soil. And the purpose of doing this was that the, the biological farming system accepts that for viticulture, example, there's no way of getting away from spraying chemicals on the vineyard. Like, so even copper and uh, wettable sulfur are declared organic. Copper's terrible for earthworms and terrible for fungi, it's, and they're all fungicides, so they kill fungi. So not only are they hitting the vines, they're going all over the ground and stuff, and they're organic. And what uh, Mary thought at this conference was that we accept that we do this, but we can do something about it. We can spray a compost tea after this and repair some of the damage. And that really struck a nerve with me. It was like, this just makes so much sense. It's not about saying you can't do this, you can't do this. It was about we accept that we have to do this to grow a crop, but we're going to do something about it. We're going to apply some biology to deal with the collateral damage of a practice that we have to do in the form of spraying. And we're going to do this and we're going to diversify the biology in the soil and increase the number of, of microbes in the soil and undo some of the uh, damage done. And I've talked to a lot of people about this over time. And the way that I explain it is you, everybody knows that after a course of antibiotics, you go and take some probiotics and everyone's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The compost tea is sort of probiotic to the soil, whereas your fungicides are antibiotics. And that, you put it into an analogy like that, and it makes a lot of sense. The, yeah, the biological farming, it, um, you look at fertilizer different, and we're able to do this a lot more in viticulture because vines are pretty hardy and they don't need a lot of nutrition. But it shows, it, they teach you that, um, you know, man made fertilizers, they don't really suit. Fungi, they sort of dry out their bodies and they increase salt in the soil. So we look at fertilizers not as fertilizer. We look at it as microbe food. So we might use a, we'll use an organic, you know, chook poo base or compost base or something like that fertilizer that's got a small amount of NPK in it. In, but we know that that's going to be eaten by the soil microbiology. And the way that that works is that you know, the fungi and the bacteria in the soil, they, they eat the organic matter, which, you know, the pellets of chukpa or whatever it is, or the cuttings from the vines that have been mulched up or the broken down roots in the soil. And um, they eat the organic matter, but it doesn't release any nutrients until that fungi and bacteria is eaten by a higher order organism or they die. So when they eat that nutrient, it goes into their bodies and becomes part of them. And then there's another level of um, organism called protozoa and they eat fungi and bacteria and when they eat them, 
it actually releases plant available nutrients. And what that means is that it's in a form that the plant can take up straight away. And by applying compost teas and compost to the soils, we're increasing the amount of biology and fungi and bacteria and protozoa. And then they're what worms eat. And if you create a environment for worms where they have an excess amount of food, that have a lot of organic matter to eat, when they process food and they give worm castings out, their number of fungi and bacteria and nematodes and things that come out of them is increased like 20-fold. 20, 20 and uh, they basically poop out NPK, magnesium and calcium, as well as aerating the soil. So what we're trying to do is encourage my, microbial life in the soil, which in the end increases the number of worms. And if you take a shovel, dig it in the ground, and you've got a shovel full of dirt, and if you can count 25 worms in that shovel full, you pretty much never have to use fertilizer ever again. So that's what we're trying to go for in biological farming. We're trying to farm the biology in the ground. Can I just say thank you, Steve, because I'm not a very scientific guy, but starting off with the antibiotic and probiotic analogy and then talking it through it actually makes a lot of sense and for me I I've, got another, uh, I've got another one I've got okay. another one so, Hit me with so it. we talk we talk about um man-made fertilizer uh, and i put it in the analogy of a multivitamin and this is where i make people when i'm talking in the group i, I say to them all right who's ever taken a multivitamin and they put up their hand and then i say to them what color does your pee go and everyone's like I'm looking at each other and uh, I'm like, does it go bright yellow? Everyone's like, yep. And I'm going, well, that's what's called leaching in an agricultural system. So if you don't, you throw on NPK, there's, a, there's an amount that will leach, there's an amount that will get locked up and there's an amount that will get used. So in your body, you know, multivitamins do work for deficiencies and stuff, but the majority of it you, you leach out of your system. But then I say to them, but if you eat a you know, really good salad of fresh food and a, and a steak, what colour is your pea? And they're like, well, it doesn't change colour. And I'm going, well, there you go. So when you add compost tea or compost into the ground, that's the type of food that plants eat. They don't eat multivitamins. The best nutrition they can get is through plant-based nutrition, which is decayed plant and animal manure. And when you put it like that, it's like that makes so much sense. We shouldn't be relying on a multivitamin for all of our requirements for our diet, we should be relying on some fresh food, which is what all of this biological stuff is about, is it's feeding the microbes in the soil. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so one person, and we'll test it out, we'll see if she raises this with me. So Amy Knight is a nutritionist and she was on a few episodes ago. She's <coughs> normally an avid listener, so she better be listening. Um, yeah. But she talks, like even... The exact same way you're talking about the way plants utilize nutrients and I suppose their diet in kind yeah. of quotation marks is the exact same way that she looks at it is that supplements should be kind of a last resort nearly. And that's what you're saying is the fertilizer is the supplement, which is somewhat of a last yeah. resort, but to actually but be. I'm not, yeah, yeah but I'm not, saying don't, I'm not saying don't use it. I'm yeah. not demonizing farmers that do use it because it does work. We can grow produce with it. But there is a way, better way of 
looking at nutrition, instead of looking at we need to put on this much N, this much P, this much K every year, because as you know, Stuart Proud is a viticulturist down here. He really drove it home with how can this nutrition system work if we have to put tons of this stuff on every year? Are we truly building fertility if we have to keep applying this fertilizer every year? But if we make a biological system that's naturally nutrient cycling and self-sustainable, we don't have to keep applying things every year. It, it's an actual fertility program it's a way of building fertility and soil health instead of adding these fertilizers every year but there are instances where they're relevant so we've got to be pragmatic we can't just say you know i'm going to let this have any deficiency when i can fix it with something yeah uh, but, you know and you know building soil takes time it's not, not going to happen overnight it takes years to change the soil yeah, absolutely. So, no, it's part of that, I suppose, the, the balanced diet when it's yeah, yeah, exactly right. organism. Exactly right. And sometimes it's perfectly fine. To, you just got to do what you're going to do to get through. And that was part of why I like biological farming because you got you can do what you've got to do to get through, but then follow it up with something that's beneficial, put something back. Yeah, and so a question I've got on that, Steve, how much crossover do you do you have? Obviously, you've got your group of viticulturalists that you guys chat about what's happening across Australia. But how often, and or if ever, do you chat with, for instance, um, yeah, beef and lamb producers who are talking about pastures and kind of that? The, the exact very, very rarely. Yeah, so um, I just reckon it'd be so fascinating to see, like a a group of farmers, whether it's a broad acre guy, it's someone who, yeah, who's Growing in different yeah. areas. Um, I mean, you know, we sort of read about each other's work and stuff like that, and some vineyards are like diversified enterprises. And, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> just watching people spread urea all over to grow grass and things like that sort of doesn't gel with me because I don't think it works properly. But, um, yeah, I don't actually get to chat to them very much. Cause again, like we don't get to chat to viticulturists very much because the only time we see them is, out at workshops or seminars or field days or something like that, there's no actual link to chat to these people, really, unless you really go looking for it hard. And then just if it's online, you know, things can be quite a difficult conversation where that that it could be a pretty good idea to sort of get like-minded people from all enterprises together to chat about this thing. Yeah, I've got a couple of guys I'm thinking of in the back of my head. So when we're allowed to get out, well, um, it might have to be next year once harvest is done, but they're, they're incredibly progressive in terms of how they approach their kind of broadacre cropping operation and, and it is all about kind of healthy soils and they're innovative in terms of how they go about sourcing different products and, and where they source them from. So Absolutely. I'll write a note down for that and we'll, we'll do that. But I suppose t- taking a bit of a turn as such and and talking i suppose about some of the other aspects of farming which you have been involved in or i suppose the the community aspects um and around like mental health and you were mentioning before we started recording today you you've recently joined up or signed up to the ripple effect but so so for you like where has the desire to support various organizations in rural communities particularly when it comes to think topics like men's health and, in particular, um, mental health? Well, as with most things, they come from personal experience, don't they? You become passionate about um, 
things, you know, like I've had some pretty, pretty down times in my career and, um, managed to get through, but there are people in my life as well that didn't make it through. And, um, I've been to too many funerals for people that couldn't do it by themselves. And the opportunity that with the ripple effect sort of came up and they're currently doing these workshops to figure out what's the best way to deliver their message and, um, get farmers and rural people to actually seek help. And I'm really proud to be a part of that because I, I've myself have, uh, suffered from anxiety and depression and I was lucky enough to have people around me that pointed me in the right direction and supported me. But that's not always the case. And even if something I might say to one person helps one person, that'll be enough. But that's kind of where the uh, drive behind doing something has come from it's come from a personal place and it's come from experiencing a place and um there's too many people that that feel like they've got nowhere to turn to and if we can encourage people to just ask for help then that's what i want to be that's what i want to do that's that's the idea yeah absolutely in in terms of i suppose the, the ripple effect do you is it still early days in regard to that or do you have some more information on it yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of information on me at present, but um, they are working on what is the best way to relay their um, program to rural Australia. So that is pretty early in that regards. And um, I'm going to be part of a workshop or work, uh, what would you call it, working group as um, what possibly could be the best way to get rural people to go online even if it's anonymous and um ask for help and seek resources and just not feel alone so yeah it is early days in that regard yeah fantastic no well it sounds like an incredibly important initiative and we'll try and dig out some more details on it so we can include it in the show notes for this but absolutely yeah as i suppose the times get closer we would love to share more information on that because yeah, I'm, I'm myself in the exact same position where even as a young person, there's been kind of too many fun- too many funerals. One's too many, but it's been too many funerals. Yeah. And um, I've chatted with a few people about it and the tides are definitely changing, but it's, yeah, it needs to become the norm where we can have these it, conversations, not an exception. It absolutely does. And like, you know, the Are You OK Day has, got, has done a massive, massive benefit for getting people to say, hey, are you okay? But then the new one is, you know, you've got to get past that question. You've got to go a bit deeper. You've got to be willing to hear somebody's uncomfortable story and that could be all that it takes. It's just for them to unload some of their stresses onto you. You know, you don't have to solve their problems. It could just be an ear and that might be enough to save someone's life and that's that's pretty important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Thank you for the work you're doing on that front, Steve. And I think in terms of just today's conversation as well, like this, this is the aspect I love of the Humans of Agriculture podcast and kind of the platform more broadly is just getting, your, I'll say my mind blown, but how this all started was just I wanted to ask questions of people in all kinds of different areas across the supply chain who are involved in and around agriculture. And obviously wine's a very important one and close to my heart, um, but... <laughs> Yeah, just it's so fascinating, just the the linkages that there are. So, um, yeah, thanks for taking the time to to chat, and I, I hope yeah you've enjoyed chatting as well. And 
and look forward to hearing it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed chewing your ear off. Oh, it's been fantastic. And if people want to find you when we're allowed back out in Victoria, um, you're out at Oak Ridge Wines in the Yarra Valley. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that chat because I certainly did. I got a lot out of it and I think it's one of those ones that I'll listen back to a few times. Steve mentioned a couple of things in there. One was the ripple effect about rural mental health and suicide prevention. You can find their link to the website in our show notes below. Another thing I want to chat about very quickly is this Movember, I've got a bit of a Humans of Agriculture team that's sporting some mows. And if you're interested in joining and helping us raise some money, jump over to the link in the show notes and come and join us. Um, As I said at the beginning, around that supply chain piece, if there are people across different areas of food, whether it's nutritionists, um, consumers, whatever, that do want to talk more about that kind of soil health and the how that relates back into the quality of food on the shelves but also our our own health i'd love to chat with you more so get in touch which at well send me an email ollie at humansofagriculture.com awesome guys look after yourself and for everyone in melbourne enjoy the freedom which has come in this morning this is absolutely sensational look after yourselves guys bye